Luke 5, 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. We have Jesus here who is being confronted by the Jewish leaders at this time. He is not walking as they walk. We even have the disciples of John the Baptist that approach Jesus in these areas. And I believe what we see within this passage is the incompatibility of the pharisaical fasting and the messianic feasting. The two are not compatible with one another The religion of the Pharisees and the scribes was that of doing works before God to attain merit before him, to raise your standard. They took the law of God, did not keep it themselves, added to it, and believed what they added to the law was in some way enhancing it and making it holier, making it better. But they were blind. They were blind guides, and they were actually diminishing the law of God. And we've walked through this reality over the last few weeks, that these were men who were actually antinomians. These were men who were actually lowering the standard of God's law. They were being without law by dismissing the law that God had given them. And then they were putting upon it their own standard. They were putting upon it their own tradition, and they were judging themselves to be right They were judging themselves to attain merit before the Lord based upon their keeping, not of God's law, but upon their tradition. Mind you this, if they were judging themselves by God's law, if they were considering the reality that God will judge them based upon the desires of their heart, God will judge them based upon their motives, God will judge them based upon the thoughts in their mind, and then most especially we would see judging the actions that they do, they would recognize that they fall short of the standard. That law would not be a standard where they say, I am so righteous, I am so good. No, they would look at that standard and it would be a mirror to them. Understand that, friends. That is one of the uses of the law of God. It is a mirror. It is something that you can look at your reflection Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This wasn't a new idea. This was in the Old Testament. And if you look at that standard, you will find yourself to be wanting. You will find yourself to not meet that standard. You will find yourself to be insufficient. That's one of the purposes of the law. 
That's one of the purposes of the law, that it would be a mirror to you, that you would see your reflection there in that mirror and see, I am not sufficient. I do not meet this standard. If you are looking at the law of God and you're saying, I got this, you're not looking at the law of God. You're looking at man's tradition. You're looking at a standard of God's law, a version of God's law that you may think is very high, is very holy, is very good. And it's none of those. It is none of those. It is so far below the standard of holiness and godliness and righteousness. You have no business saying that I am perfect by following this, that I have merit before God by following this. Three points that I want to pull out of this, this idea of the incompatibility of the pharisaical fasting and the messianic feasting. We see the pharisaical asceticism. They had created a religious system that encouraged and enforced ascetic practices that deemed people to be holier because they didn't do certain things. And you can walk into that. You can walk into a religion of what I'm not. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do that. There's a great many things that as a Christian you should not do. But the totality of your religion needs to be defined in what you are. It needs to be defined in positive aspects of what you are to do. Even understanding God's moral law, even understanding the Ten Commandments, we know. We have studied this reality that for every negative that is there, you are to walk forward in a positive aspect of that command. Eighth commandment says, do not steal. Well, if I'm to not steal, okay, it's not just about I didn't steal, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to steal. That's not how that works. Because Paul even encourages others in this. You are to work with your hands in such a way that you can care for yourself and have sufficient left over that you can give to others and support others. Support the work of God's kingdom and the ministry. Support the work of others that are in need. That is to keep the eighth commandment. It's not just about what you don't do. And we've walked through that before. You can see that in each and every one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. There's a positive and negative side of it. The pharisaical asceticism just said, this is what we don't do. We're going to stay away from this. We are holier because we are not doing these particular things here. There is a, secondly, a messianic celebration. There is a celebration that is here. Christ the bridegroom. Christ the one who is coming forward to save his bride. Who is coming forward as a blessing to his people to lay down his life for his church. It's not being celebrated by those that are here. And they're coming forward to those that are celebrating and saying, why aren't you fasting? Why don't you have ashes on your face? Why aren't you wearing sackcloth? This is a wedding feast. The bridegroom is here. Who walks around depressed at a wedding? Who walks around and says, no, I can't have anything to eat? At this wedding, I am fasting during this time that is absurd. So thirdly, we see the gospel incompatibility of these two religions. They are not the same religion. This asceticism of the Pharisees that they were demanding and compelling others to keep is incompatible, is inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. 
is inconsistent with, with what Christ has purchased for his people. Let's walk through these points. This is a fantastic passage. Number one, the pharisaical asceticism. Verse 33 of chapter 5 of Luke. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Now, when Janice was pregnant with, with Houston, it was our first child. And even those times when this is your first child and your first pregnancy, everything is new for you. And we were at a point where we were up one night and she was like, you know, I've got a little pain here. I don't know what's going on. We began to think through what was going on and we didn't have internet just to go Google it at the time. And we said, you know, I think you're in labor. It's like, you know what? I think I am in labor. We're putting all the pieces together. We're looking through the different books that we had and I think we're in labor. Okay. So what should we do? She said, well, I've already got a bag together. I'll get some more things together. Hey, Aaron, why don't you Go and make yourself some food, because when you get to the hospital, you're going to be hungry. We're going to be there a while. I was like, okay, sounds like a good idea. So I went into the kitchen. I worked at a restaurant at the time. Um, and one of the things I was able to do was to buy some, you know, just a really good quality. They had prime steak that they sold there. And so I would buy the scraps of this prime ribeye steak. And so it wasn't a whole steak, but it was little tiny pieces. Excellent quality meat. Worked great in stir fry. So I'm in the kitchen and I'm throwing garlic in there and cutting up onions and peppers and vegetables and I'm stir frying this up and it smells fantastic. And I've got this prime ribeye steak right in the middle of all this, cooked it nice and medium rare. Had some Gruyere cheese because I'd go to Whole Foods and just, I still do this. I'll go grab some random cheese. I don't even know what the cheese is. It's like a sample for three bucks and I'll just grab it. I'm putting that on there and it looked fantastic. Closed it up, put it in the box. Janice and I went to the hospital. We walk into the hospital. Everything's new for us here. And they're like, well, you might go home. Nope, you are in labor. You're far along. You're going to deliver tonight. That's what they told her. They brought her into the room. We didn't grab the bags. So I leave, go out to get the bags. Of course, grab my, my dinner that she told me to pack. Brought both of those in there. I come in. She's wearing an oxygen mask because some thing went off and said the baby was low in oxygen. So she's got oxygen now at this point, and the nurse tells her, well, you're going to settle for a little bit, allow you to get further along in this process, and Janice says, hey, this is probably a good time for you to eat. So I pull out this delicious meal that I made, and I am, I'm eating my dinner, and Janice is happy, and I've got a theology book. I was in seminary at the time. I'm reading my theology book, and I'm snacking there on the couch, and the nurse comes in, and she is livid. How can you sit there and eat at a time like this. You should be ashamed of yourself. And she begins to scold me. Like, you even know what I did wrong? This is what she told me. She told me to make something. It's so like Janice, though. She's in the middle of labor. This is her first child. She's nervous, but she's thinking about, well, my husband might get hungry. Why don't you go make yourself something? And she actually means it. If she says that to me, she actually means it. She's not going to come back to me and say, well, you should have known that I meant. No, she really means that, and she did mean that. And she's there with her oxygen mask trying to defend me to this nurse, and this nurse would have none of it. This nurse had her own tradition there of how it is I was supposed to behave, how it is this relationship between husband and wife. Where I remember at one point when we came in, she was like, you should be cursing at your husband at this point. You're so far along in your pregnancy. 
something that's never happened with any of the pregnancies that, that we've had. I've never been cursed at by my wife, and this is one time in particular. She was very considerate of me and what I might desire that evening, but not so with this nurse's tradition. This was offensive to her. This was shocking to her. That's close to where these scribes and Pharisees are. The behavior of Jesus and his disciples is offensive to them. They had their own system. They had their own tradition. There are ways in which you were expected to act if you were going to be a holy person, and most especially if you were going to be a rabbi and a student of a rabbi, and Jesus was not keeping with that tradition. As we said many times, they had taken the Mosaic law and they had added to it, and in many times they had not even kept the moral law, which that Mosaic law was pointing to oftentimes. Understand fasting at this time. Understand fasting in the Mosaic Covenant. It is a practice that is only required at one point in the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant. That's at one time, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They were to fast on that day. It was to be a, a fasting day as they were fasting nationally for their sins. We see that in Leviticus 16, verses 29 and 30. There's a longer passage about that day and how they should act. But verses 29 and 30 say this, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. Now, the key word that you have there is the word afflict. This is not talking about beating themselves or injuring themselves. The word afflict there means to fast, means to not eat. All other times of fasting in the Mosaic Covenant were voluntary. People would do that during times of mourning, 2 Samuel 1 and verse 12, during times of you know, disaster or national um, calamities or pain, Nehemiah 1 and verse 4. They would do it during times of repentance, 1 Kings 21 and verse 27. This was not sufficient for the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. Merely having it um, to be once a year required and then at other times to be voluntary did not keep with good godliness in their minds. And so they demanded that people fast twice a week. And it was on Monday and Thursday. And it's quite possible that what's happening here in the story with the feast that's going on at Matthew's house is happening on a Monday or a Thursday. And that would very much bring to light why they're confronting them at this time. And so probably one of those days is when it's happening. And so for the Pharisees to see Jesus and his disciples not keeping with the, these fasting requirements is something that was offensive to them. But mark this. The standard that they put upon other people here was over a hundred times as much as what was required in the Mosaic Covenant. Once a year was required, they're demanding twice a week. And they had a view that this fasting was meritorious. It was something that added to your standing before God. It added merit to you in your religious standing. And this is also something that would be well known. 
okay? The, the fasting by the Pharisees and the scribes is something that was well known. There were certain behaviors that you would have at this time. You'd be able to, be able to tell that someone was fasting as to how they were dressing, as to how they were carrying themselves which is why Jesus says what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Because actually, if you're fasting most of the time, according to the way that Jesus commands people to do it, people aren't going to know about it. You're not going to walk around gloomy. You're not going to walk around, you know, sad. You're not going to walk around trying to get attention from other people. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Then your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the way you're commanded to do these things. That's the way that you're commanded to, to act as a Christian. We're not to be showy with what we do. We're not to be making much of ourselves. And that's what such religion does. That's what such tradition does. Such tradition is man-centered. It's man-focused. It's not man saying, this would be beneficial for me, let me do it. This is man saying, let me show off to other people how righteous I am. But such a man has lowered the standard of God's law. And such a man has added to the standard of God's law a standard that he appreciates and he desires to keep. Meanwhile, he's neglecting the greater areas of God's law because someone that sees God's law rightly doesn't say, look, I'm keeping this. Look at how holy I am. Someone that sees God's law rightly says, help me, O God, I am a wretched sinner. Such a man that sees God's law rightly looks at the mirror of God's law and sees the ways in which he is deficient and says, I must cling to Christ, the one who has kept the law in every way, the one who has perfectly obeyed the law of God. Now, what's interesting here is that, I mean, this is something that even John the Baptist and his disciples kept. They kept these ascetic practices, and these are things that you can do. You can do certain practices, but you begin to err when you believe you're raising your standard before God, that you're adding merit to yourself as far as your righteousness And you also sin when you begin to demand these practices from others. That's where you begin to sin. It's interesting even that John's disciples ask Jesus the same question. We see them ask that question in Matthew chapter 9. John's disciples are given the same reasoning by Jesus. Um, At other times we see John's disciples, it seems at least, a little jealous of Jesus and his ministry. They say to uh, John in John three twenty six, Rabbi, who was with you across the Jordan, who bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. They're saying, hey, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? That's where John has to tell them. I am going to decrease. He is going to increase. They're having to be instructed now that he is the herald. He's the one that's coming forward. He's not bringing everyone to himself. He is directing people to Jesus Something mindful you can take there. That is a a goal of religion. That is a goal of your life should be to point others to Jesus, not to point people to you. You're not the one who is primary. Christ is primary. But Jesus wasn't here to encourage men in the religion of men. Jesus wasn't here 
to add to the ceremonial law. Jesus came to fulfill the law in every respect on behalf of his people. And this pharisaical asceticism was contrary to the religion of Jesus. This pharisaical asceticism is that that diminished the law and made men feel just rather than lead men to see they needed this Savior. And so Jesus will have no part of this. Jesus is not participating in the traditions of men. So that's why, secondly, we see the, this messianic celebration. This messianic celebration at this time. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus' first retort to the Pharisees' criticism is that his disciples are not fasting at this time because it's inconsistent with the coming of the bridegroom. It makes no sense for them to be fasting at the time when Jesus is here. It makes no time for someone to be fasting in the midst of a wedding celebration. And he's saying this to them because even the Pharisees had rules regarding fasting. Even Pharisees would not have supported a a fasting during the time of a wedding celebration. Remember, these wedding celebrations would go on for many days at a time. People would travel in from out of town, and these wedding celebrations would go on for almost a week at a time. There was a lot of food and drinks that had to be purchased for all these people from out of town that were coming in. Much provision had to be made. And so for someone to come during that time and say, oh, I am at a fast and I have ashes all over my face and I'm disfiguring myself and I'm carrying myself in a gloomy way, even the Pharisees recognize that is, that is wrong, that is not right. It's inconsistent with what is happening there. Rabbinic teaching taught that fasting had to cease during a wedding celebration. Everyone was to participate. Everyone was to celebrate at this time, everyone was to eat and to care for themselves. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine there being a wedding celebration and people sitting to the side depressed and gloomy? I mean, that's, that's a time of celebration. Secondly, you're making it about yourself at this time. And I think that's a point as well that you see here. The bridegroom is here. Jesus has arrived. The Son of God has assumed the flesh he is dwelling amongst the people. And these Pharisees don't like the fact that the attention is upon him. These Pharisees don't like the fact that people are coming to him. Even John's disciples struggled with this. Wait, there's more people going to him now than are coming to you, John. More people are going over there than are coming here. I think that's a good key as to why you see some of John's disciples later on in the book of Acts, and they had never heard of Jesus. They had never heard of the Christ. They had not known that he had come. These men did not like the fact that Jesus was getting the attention, but it is inappropriate to put the attention upon yourself at someone else's wedding. I mean, we even have like social mores during this time of 
decorum and behavior at weddings, how it is that you're supposed to behave. Right? When you bring your children to weddings, you have to teach them, well, you don't want to wear that for this reason, or you don't want to carry yourself this way for that reason, because the emphasis is there upon this wedding that is happening, this family that is being created. Furthermore, we see Jesus talking about himself as the bridegroom. Jesus as the one who is coming forward. This is not, this isn't a common thing for in the Old Testament that God would refer to himself as the husband of Israel. He would refer to himself as the husband and Israel as the wife. So make note of this. Jesus is making a declaration about his deity at this point. They're not catching it. They're not catching this. I, I am certain that this is a a declaration of Christ's deity at this point, because we can look through numerous passages in the Old Testament and see Yahweh declaring himself to be God, declaring himself to be the husband, and Israel being his wife. And Jesus is declaring himself to be the husband of the people. Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's actually happening right now. This is the Lord having compassion on his people. This is the Lord Jesus Christ coming down. This is the Lord that brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing. That's what John says at the beginning of his gospel. That is who Jesus is. He is the Lord God who brought all things into existence, and he is coming to deliver his people. The leaders aren't catching this. They're not recognizing this connection here. It probably just seems odd to them that he would call himself a bridegroom. They're not making the connections at this point. I think if they had, they would have picked up stones. They would have tried to stone him at this time because he is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament and the God that spoke to Israel and the one who was, was the husband of Israel. So Jesus is the Lord God of Israel, and he should be celebrated at his arrival. There should be great feasting. There should be great celebration at this time. This is not a time for mourning. This is not a time for affliction. This is not a time for people to be fasting and to be depressed and to be low in spirit. This is a time to say praise be to God, the promised Messiah from on old is here. God is bringing to pass what he promised he would do. The Lord is bringing to pass what he promised in the earliest pages of Scripture, that he is going to make right all that is made wrong, and this is the one that he has sent. This is the Lord God. This is the Son of God. This is the one who will lay down his life for his people. No need to afflict yourselves because Jesus is the one who is afflicted for his people. We just need to go back a chapter or so in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 5. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like sheep that before its shears are silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the one that is afflicted. I'm using the word slightly differently there, but I can use it even to say Jesus is the one who fasted in the wilderness. And why? Just for the fun of it? Just because this was an ascetic practice that would make him holier with God? No. Jesus fasted in the wilderness, dear friends, because he is doing the opposite of what Adam did. See, Satan is invading the wilderness at that time. Satan is seeking to tempt Jesus, and he tempts him not. Jesus does not succumb to Satan's temptation. Jesus does not fall prey to what Satan entices him with. No, Jesus is the faithful Adam. Jesus is the faithful Son of God. Jesus is the one that was obedient, that the people who came after him would have life, whereas those that came after Adam got death, were born dead in their trespasses and sins. That is the reason for Jesus' fasting at that time. That is the reason for Jesus' affliction throughout his life. And so we take not affliction upon ourselves to gain righteousness before God. We take affliction upon ourselves not for the purpose of changing our standing before God or adding any merit to us in our standing before God. No, that has fallen upon Christ. It is upon Christ alone that that lands. Dear friends, I hope you see a distinction here between true religion and Jesus Christ, a true religion that is grace and through faith, and a distinction with man's religion that determines his merit, determines his standing, and his faithfulness to man's tradition, attaining his righteousness through his actions. No, friends, see this. It has fallen upon Jesus. So Jesus' attitude here, Jesus' issue with the fasting of the Pharisees, I think is summed up really well by a commentator named Gildenhus. And he says this, Jesus' attitude towards fasting briefly amounts to this, that he rejects it as a religiously meritorious ceremony bearing a compulsory ceremonial character. But he practiced it himself at times and permits it as a voluntary form of spiritual discipline. And that is what you see. You see him fasting at the time in the wilderness because he is doing what Adam didn't do. He's doing the opposite there. Adam was there in the garden. He was there in the lush garden. He had all the trees that he could eat from at that time except for the one that he was com- he was commanded not to eat from, and that positive law that the Lord gave to him and to Eve. And Jesus is here in a wilderness, fasting, starving at this time, not eating, to make up for what Adam had not done. He was being faithful at that time. Early Christians practiced fasting voluntarily. We see this 
in the Scriptures, Acts 9, Acts 13, Acts 14. The reality is, though, as Christianity progressed through the centuries, man's religion began to creep its way in as well. And it begins to make it not Christianity when you do this, by the way. But by the third century, many had turned this into some kind of a meritorious, uh, you know, action, something that was required, obligatory. You see this very much in Roman Catholicism. You see this very much every single year as you get around to the time of Lent and then the absurdity of Fat Tuesday and Mardi Gras and all that follows from that. And what do you see every single time? You see people believing that they are, being, they are gaining something meritorious before God because they are not eating something. It's very interesting. The emphasis is not upon the law of God. The emphasis here is not upon, okay, you know, I've been living sexually in a sexually immoral way. I'm going to turn from that. I've been living as a drunkard. I'm going to turn from that. These would be very appropriate things to do in light of seeing who Jesus is, in light of understanding the law of God and the judgment to come. What do we see so oftentimes? Well, it is Lent. I'm going to give up chocolate. Or or it is Lent. I'm going to give up watching fill in the name of some television program. It just doesn't matter at all. You, you, there, perhaps there are some television programs that you should not watch. I don't deny that. But as a matter of not watching something that you enjoy, as though in some way you enjoying your life is an unholy thing. You see that connection? It very much connects to what's happening here. Oh, it's holier that I am not feeling well, that I'm fasting for the day, that I'm not having fun, that I'm not enjoying myself. God made the world the way that it is. God, God made the world with, with, with flavor. He made food not just to give you sustenance, but He made food to have a, a many different flavors. The, the idea of seeing all the many ways that you can make food, all the incredible ways that you can make many delicacies with things that just grow out of the ground or walk around and reproduce on the earth, all the things that you can make and all the many complicated variations that are there and you have the ability to even understand, experience, and interpret these variations than to say that there is no God? How incredible. How incredible. Even a chef in a kitchen recognizes the handiwork of God and the ways in which food can go together. There is nothing holy about merely being ascetic. There is nothing holy about just denying yourself something that is fun just for the sake of that. Now, there is good reason as a Christian to deny yourselves a great many things for the cause of Christ. For the work of the kingdom, there's many things that are there, but it's not meritorious. And it's not made better or holier merely in that there's no enjoyment in that particular action. And that's the issue that is there. And you see that antinomianism and legalism, even there with Lent and Mardi Gras, with all of the foolishness that follows there, where you have people who will sin over and over for the week to come, and then, oh, it's Lent. I'm going to give up chocolate, or I'm going to 
eat fish during all of this time, things that aren't even commanded, but all of these things that were commanded in the weeks prior, you ignored them. You cared not for them. The same issue that is here with the Pharisees where they would diminish the moral law of God but deem themselves to be merited because of their keeping of this tradition. Just be mindful of this requiring things of others that are not demanded by Christ. And all people everywhere can, can fall into this. This is spoken of in the confession in the 21st chapter of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. It says this in paragraph 2, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of conscience and the reason also. So you have no place to demand from others that which is not required in the Scriptures. And before you go and tell you, well, it's just my conscience over here, it's saying that as well. It's saying that as well, that to say this is my conscience when it's not something that's actually in the Scriptures is to violate what what the framers are writing right here. Brief passage on this, Romans 8 and verse 15. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Understanding this rightly, this is adoption. Sometimes adoption is forgotten. Adoption is overlooked. We talk about justification, sanctification, glorification. Okay, there's, there's an adoption that is in there as well that's preceding uh, even sanctification. That is this idea that you are adopted into the family of God. You are there in the family of God. You are brought into that family. So an adopted child does not have to earn his standing in the family. He is adopted in the family. He is a part of that family. And so there is nothing we need to do to, to raise our standing before the Lord. There's no need to practice asceticism for the purpose of attaining some kind of a merit before the Lord. You can turn actions that look good and holy and righteous into that which is sinful if you don't practice it rightly. Must need, we must say this, though. Okay, you have liberty in Christ. You don't have liberty to sin. You have no liberty to sin. Christ has not purchased for you the liberty to live contrary to the moral law of God. You are free from the ceremonial law. You are free from the judicial law. Only as general equity as it's understood. And general equity, when it's talked about in our confession, is talking about the moral aspect of it. The ways in which it's tied directly to the moral law. You're not free to violate the moral law. Paragraph 3 of chapter 21 of the Confession says this, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust as they do thereby pervert the main design of grace of the gospel to their own destruction, so they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness, righteousness before him all the days of our life. You have been granted a freedom in Christ, not to walk in sin, but a freedom to walk in holiness, a freedom to walk in righteousness, something you had not prior to Christ purchasing you. 
something you had not prior to your regeneration and your coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul deals with this in this famous passage in Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? This is after the great chapter on justification. Because some will say that, right? You know, you believed that you're saved by grace and through faith, so it doesn't matter how you live. It does matter how you live. How you live is a, a demonstration of what you believe. But Paul says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You are saved in Christ Jesus to walk as Pastor Fry is teaching right now in Sunday school. And I would encourage you to attend this new Sunday school. It is going to be fantastic. He has saved you to walk in a newness of life. To walk as a new person. So therefore, this requirement of affliction by the Pharisees is inconsistent with true religion because it's in competition with the work of Jesus. They're incompatible. So we see that, number three, gospel incompatibility. Luke 5, 36-39. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, and the skins, and burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So this is Jesus' second retort to the Pharisees here. And he's telling them that their religion is not compatible with the gospel. And he uses two examples to explain that incompatibility. The new patch on an old garment. And then secondly, this, this illustration of putting new wine into old wineskins. So we see the patch illustration in 536. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So we have two issues here. The two don't match each other, that they're different. And also as you begin to use this garment as it was designed to be used, they're going to rip apart. The old one is already shrunk. The new one has not shrunk. It's going, to, they're going to, it's going to shrink off of the old one, and it's going to tear what you have created, or it's going to look really odd. They don't go. It's not going to mix. You can't take this religious asceticism of the Pharisees and pull it into Christianity as this kind of meritorious action. And understand that as well. They're not even practicing the religion that the Lord commanded them to practice when they are demanding that other people keep these rules that the Lord has not given. They're thinking, I add more rules, then it's going to make it better than it is. No, the Lord has commanded this. You need not go beyond what the Lord has said. Secondly, we see that wineskin illustration. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, this is a strange illustration for you because we don't use wineskins in this way. Wine is generally made in a bottle in this country and it has been since people made glass. But it was common to use the skins of animals to hold liquids at this time. 
very resourceful. I don't know how many of us could go and take an animal carcass and end up with something that you could store um, beverages in, but they were able to do that. They were able to, to, to um, take apart the animal, and they were able to put it back together in such a way that it would hold liquids and not damage the flavor of whatever you had there. It was quite an art to what they did that has been lost, I think, in this, this day and time. But they would take something like a goat, they would take the bones out, they would take the insides out, and they would tan it, and they would prepare it in such a way, and it would hold liquids. And so when they would ferment wine in there, and that's what's happening here, just so you all know. This isn't just carrying around grape juice. They're making wine, and the fermentation of wine is something that was beneficial to people. It's talked of as being um, a blessing to others. It was a preservative. This is something that could be stored for a long period of time because grapes don't grow all year round. And so if you have grapes, they're going to begin to rot very soon after you have them. Same thing with the grape juice, the grape juice most especially. So the fermentation process served as a preservative aspect to this beverage, and they could store it within these animal skins. And so as it began to ferment, the gases that were created would then expand the animal skin. But you could only use it once. You try using it again. You put new wine then in the old wine skins. It's going to then begin to ferment like the one did before, and it's going to burst. Your wine skin is going to be destroyed. You can't use it to carry liquid anymore, and the wine is going to be lost. It serves no purpose at all. It's not beneficial to you. So he's teaching them here that this is inconsistent with the gospel. They're requiring of these things, and they're trying to mix this with the grace of God is something that is inconsistent. You can't do that. You cannot mix any religion with Christianity. It's not possible. There's two religions, two religions in the world. I don't care what religion you grab. It's going to go in one of two categories. It's going to be the religion of God, which is true religion, or it's going to be the religion of man, which is false religion. And the religion of God is going to be based upon grace and through faith. That is what it has always been. It has never been on the basis of your works that you are attaining merit before God. The entirety of the ceremonial law that was demonstrated day in and day out, each and every day as animals were slaughtered, as the smells and the bells and the noises and all aspects of that religion was being carried forth right in the center of the people. It was a reminder that man's works are insufficient. As that altar was burning day and night, and they were putting a lamb on that altar in the morning, they were putting a lamb on that altar in the evening, and people were bringing animals to that altar throughout the day, there is a reminder, insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. It wasn't good enough. So even the practice of these commandments in the Old Testament were pointing to the need of the grace of God. They were pointing to the necessity of one to come forward, one sacrificial lamb that will make right all that is wrong, one sacrificial lamb that will come forward, that will be brought forward, and will make peace between man and God. Because all of the sacrifices of the animals merely demonstrated the flame was continuing to burn. All the sacrifices of the animals, none of those sacrifices ripped, that, ripped the curtain at the most holy place. 
Not a one of them did that except for the death of Christ, except for that perfect lamb of God. So we have no need to mix law and gospel or to demand that your keeping of the law is in some way meriting yourself before God. And most especially, we don't need to demand, because at least if you're looking at God's law rightly, you'll recognize, okay, I don't keep God's law perfectly, so that's not going to work. That's not what man does. Man goes and begins to make his own rules, his own traditions, his own way of doing things, and says, well, I'm doing these things over here. That'll give me some kind of merit. And that's what happens. You mix Christianity with any other religion. You make it a religion of works. Roman Catholicism tries to do that. They try to say, no, no, we have justification by grace and through faith. It's nice that they say that. That's not what they mean. Because they will say, whenever someone is baptized, there'll be a baby, unaware of what's happening, that baby's baptized, well, his original sin is removed. He's justified at that point. But then if you sin at any point in the future, well, then you can lose your standing. You create a moral sin, and then you fall and go straight into hell. This is not... This is not religion by grace and through faith. This is religion of merit because then they begin to give you a bunch of things you have to do. They call it grace. It's no grace at all. Going to a mass and participating in those activities and a little bit of sin is forgiven there. And then perhaps when you die, you'll go to purgatory and you'll be purged and cleansed at that time. Other religions like Mormonisms do this. They say that you're saved by the grace of God after doing all that you can. This is my paraphrase of the wordings of Joseph Smith there. But you're forgiven, you're saved by grace after doing all that you can do. Okay, that has a, 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 a bit of comfort if you don't think about what you just said. Which of us can say, I've done all that I could do. I've always done my best, the best that I could do. Well, you couldn't say that for one day. You could think of your behavior for one day and think, I could have done this better. I could have had a better attitude. I could have done this differently. That's the Christian life. That, that is what we call progressive sanctification. That is growing in holiness, not to change my merit before the Lord. No, but rather to walk in obedience to God because I've been saved and given the opportunity, given the ability to walk in obedience. We are not saved by grace after we do all that we can do. Again, that is saying it's by grace because it sounds great to say grace. It is, it is an epidemic right now, the amount of people that are claiming to be Christians and are conflating law and gospel. They're mixing the two up. The law is what God has commanded to be done. And the gospel is the good news of what Christ has accomplished, that Christ has accomplished all that is necessary. You cannot mix the two. You cannot marry Christianity with legalism. You cannot marry Christianity with a merit-based religious system that changes your religious standing, your righteous standing before the Lord based upon your actions. You know, that legalistic mindset these legalistic religious practices have to be removed. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you are doing some of that yourself, if you are raising your standard in some way before the Lord through your actions, you're saying, Jesus is the way and so am I. I'm adding to this. Jesus purchased all that is necessary that you can be saved. That is what he has granted. What was required? Perfection. Perfect keeping of the law and perfect holiness before God. Jesus did both of those. Through his passive obedience, he took upon himself the consequences of sin through his life and his death, his resurrection. Jesus, through his life that he lived, fulfilled the law in every respect. And that is the righteousness that you have before the Lord. That is the righteousness that you are clothed in before the Lord. You can add nothing to that righteousness. You cannot raise your standing before the Lord through your actions. The actions that you do flow out of a grateful heart, dear Christian, out of loving obedience to the Lord because he has saved you. Like the Israelites were called to leave. They were, they were sent out of Egypt. God showed grace to them and brought them out of Egypt, and they were to worship the Lord. They didn't worship the Lord so they could get out of Egypt. No, the Lord saved them out of Egypt that they would go and worship him, that they would walk in obedience and holiness. The same is true for you, dear Christian. Except there's a difference here covenantally that each and every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. Each and every Christian has been born again. Each and every Christian has new eyes, new ears, a new mind, has a new heart. No longer has a heart of stone, but has a heart of flesh. The Spirit dwells within him. The Word works upon him. Not so with all of the Israelites that were brought out of Egypt. A great many of them died in the wilderness and their sins and fell under the wrath and curse of God. But in Christ, each and every one of you, dear Christians, each and every one of you, know the Lord, as Jeremiah says. There's no need to tell them, know the Lord. All that are in the new covenant, know the Lord, if you do, in fact, know the Lord. Please, please see this reality. Even times of fasting, they are appropriate. There's times to do this. There's times during tragedy for people to fast. There's times in dealing with a particular sin, not to gain merit before the Lord. Jesus fasted. We see that at different times. Those that came afterward, we see them that they fast. But there is a celebration here. The bridegroom is here. And the sad verse that we have here at the end says this, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Gelden, who says this, he says, in these words our Lord explains why the followers of the old forms of religion are not immediately inclined to accept the new forms which he brings don't understand this to mean that anyone practicing man's religion or anyone practicing the religion of the Pharisees would never turn. Many of them did. We see Nicodemus progressively doing this, and we see many others who turn, who see the error of their way, and turn to Christ. What better example do we have than the Apostle Paul, who said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But the idea that he's saying here in this example is the idea that someone is saying, this is good enough. What I have here is good enough. I'm covered here. 
And that's, that's the problem that exists there, is that man in his religion will say, this is good enough. I've got this. Man in his religion will even go on and begin to give you a pedigree. All the times that I've been talking to someone, talking to them about the law and the gospel, talking to them about the grace that is there in Jesus Christ, and out of the clear blue, that person will say, yes, but what about my grandmother? My grandmother is a good person. Well, Romans 3, Paul would argue that no, no, she is not. Remember, Paul, Paul emphasizes that. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. Why does he say no, not one? Because as soon as he says none is righteous, you begin to think about someone. Well, I've got this relative. I've got this uncle. I've got this grandfather. No, 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 no. Not by your standard. Yes, your grandmother's righteous by your standard. Your uncle's righteous by your standard. You're righteous by your standard, but not by God's standards. All fall short of the glory of God. All are falling short of this necessary standard of righteousness in Christ Jesus. And no amount of denial of pleasure solves that problem. No amount of legalistic action solves that problem. No, there is one solution there is one name under heaven that God has given whereby man can be saved. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ. That is it. And so the coming of Christ at this time is a celebration, and it should be a celebration for you as well, dear friends. You should have joy in walking in the Christian life. He has granted you freedom from sin. Don't look back. Don't look back at the lust of Egypt. Don't look back at Egypt and say, yeah, but over there we had. And then you fill in the blank of whatever it is that you had in your old life, in the old time, when you walked in the religion of man. No. Look at the grace that you have in Christ. Look at the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. You are freed from the curse of the law, freed from the curse of the law, not to be bound as a covenant of works that you attain righteousness before God because you weren't doing well with that. So there's no need for us to go back to try to gain merit before God by our, our actions. It's been purchased in Christ Jesus and we can walk forward in obedience as those that have been saved by grace and through faith because he's purchased that for us. And that is the blessing that we have in Christ Jesus and that is the celebration for you, dear friends, dear Christians, that you would walk in this newness of life, in this life that has been given to you, that Christ is coming again, and Christ will return, and he will make all things new, and the bridegroom will return, and he will gather his bride. Oh, dear friends, that we would be preparing ourselves for that great and blessed day.